Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Malachi chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been... Beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord God, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people towards whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly? Says the Lord of hosts. But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it. In that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord. But cursed be the swindler, who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So let me start by saying, by addressing why we're turning to another minor prophet after recently working through the prophet uh, Zephaniah's writings. Um, The prophets were raised up by God as particular sins 
were being pursued and embraced by, the, by God's people. In his mercy, in God's mercy, he sent them prophets who called them to repent. And through those same prophets who called the people to repent, God offered them hope. Hope in the coming Messiah. The prophets had the hard work of calling uh, a stubborn, sin-pursuing, obstinate people back to God. Back to faith. Back to a full trust in Him. Today, the church... Today, the church in America is tossed about by every wind of doctrine. By all kinds of new things, which are not really new things. There's nothing new under the sun. We, like the Athenians of Paul's day, like to hear and tell about new things. The church today is spending most of its energy trying to think of those new things. New ways to accommodate although it's just new packaging over old things, right? But new ways to accommodate the gospel to a pagan culture. That's what's happening. We're accommodating the gospel. We're accommodating the word of God to the pagan culture around us. The city of God is envying the city of man. And so uh, doing what she can to join them or at least to remain respectable in their eyes. And it should be the other way around. Right? The church wants to build bridges by making the message of Scripture palatable, um, acceptable to modern sensibilities. But to do that, she has to abandon her faith in the Word of God, even to, even to you know, abandon her faith in the Word of God, even though the church knows that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge even the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so... And so we translate the scriptures differently, right? To take the edge off a little bit. We get embarrassed about the word effeminate, so let's leave that out. We get embarrassed about about, um, Jesus implicating the Jews in in his um, death. And so we take that out and replace it for Jewish leaders. And we get embarrassed about when it addresses the brothers of the church. And so we change it to brothers and sisters And we get embarrassed about how it talks about Israel as the sons of Israel. So we change it to the children of Israel. And it just, this goes on and on, this process of accommodating even the very words of Scripture to make it palatable to modern pagan sensibilities. Right? So like the Galatians, our church in America needs the Apostle Paul's rebuke. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another, right? Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he's to be damned. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be damned. 
For I am now seeking, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? That's the question that we should all ask ourselves repeatedly every moment of every day. Am I now seeking to please men or please God? Or am I striving to please men? If, it, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. So if you find you're serving men, if you're uh, fearing men, then it means you're likely not a slave of Christ. And so we learn from the apostle in that passage that if our primary goal is pleasing men, we will not be pleasing God. The church today clamors to please men. Clamors, right? Proving her pseudo-compassion for sexual minorities and other social justice causes, even though, even though those pursuits fly in the face of biblical righteousness, right? And justice. One commentary on Malachi, helpful in, in giving a picture of, of Malachi's time, explains the context this way. Um, it was an age when Malachi was writing, when Malachi was ministering, it was an age of widespread religious disillusionment and discontent. Although the people of Haggai's day, right, this would be shortly or decades before um, Haggai prophesied before Malachi, Although the people of Haggai's day had fallen short of what God expected of them, when they were challenged about it, they acknowledged that they were wrong. They admitted that the temple ought to be rebuilt, and they came to accept that they should start immediately. But the, but the time of Malachi, the nature of the people's disobedience had changed. They could see nothing wrong with the way they were living or with the way they approached God in worship. When challenged about their attitudes, there was no acknowledgement of wrongdoing on their part. Instead, they were prepared to defend their behavior. Indeed, they, they more than hinted that what had gone wrong was that the Lord had not lived up to his side of the covenant. It was a time of religious cynicism. I mean, I just described today pretty perfectly, didn't I? People say they're orthodox. People say that they're pursuing righteousness. And then you confront them about it, and what they do is defend their behavior. Right? They defend their behavior. Oh, it's not sinful behavior. Homosexual desires is not sin. Right? Come on. We're pursuing God. And so this, this perfectly summarizes um, our day and age, but also that day and age uh, many thousands, uh, thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago. So the prophets deal with the stubbornness. This prophet deals with the stubbornness of people who are leaving God for what they think are greener pastures of the world. Right? Still has a, a thick veneer of, of religion right over the top of it. But it's worldliness with a veneer. And so... We need the eternal message of the prophets to wake us up to repentance and to bring us back to hoping in Messiah, in our Messiah, Jesus Christ. The prophets destroy the idea of placing our hopes in any knowledge concocted by man away from the word of God. They cause us to return to first principles, right? And so that's why we need Malachi today. Right? It will cause us to go back to first principles. Right? The first word of Malachi that is translated oracle 
in my version, can also be translated burden. Right? God put this uh, prophet under a burden which he was faithful to announce to God's people. That burden is now upon me, right? And will hopefully be faithfully preached to our church. The burden of the word of God. Calvin, writing about that word, John Calvin says, it will become evident that the doctrine of Malachi is not without reason called a burden. It was necessary that the people should be summoned before God's tribunal inasmuch as many sins had again begun to prevail among them and such as could not be endured. And for this reason, he says that God's judgment was at hand. That's the burden that Malachi gets. He's not going to be, he's not going to have, Israel's not going to be throwing parties for Malachi, right? He's not going to get the Medal of Honor. He's not going to be called up in front of the the whole assembly and, and be thanked for anything he's doing. He just has this burden, and God has placed it on him, and he's got to deal with it. Right? The church today, you and I, need that same kind of warning because the sin which entangled them so easily entangles us still today. Right? And it's God's kindness toward us that leads us to repentance. So who was Malachi, and, and when was the burden of the calling that God put upon him? To lead the people to repentance, when was it placed upon him? Uh, First, Malachi literally means my messenger, right? So uh, even more of uh, a clear sense that he is is called to give God's word. Um, He's not speaking his own words. He is a messenger of somebody else, and that is God Almighty. That is the case with all prophets, right? And that is the case with Malachi. Second, Malachi prophesied after Judah and and certainly after Israel had been spit out of the land into exile. He, along with Haggai and Zechariah, uh, they're known as the um, post-exilic prophets. Um, He was probably a, he he was uh, most likely a contemporary of Nehemiah, who, as you know, was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes and returned to Jerusalem to build the walls. The sins that Nehemiah dealt with are very similar to the sins outlined um, in the book of Malachi. So same time period, Nehemiah is dealing with certain things you read at the end of the book. Malachi is dealing with those same things from the angle of a prophet. Marriage to pagans, right? Neglecting the tithe, profaning the Sabbath day. The sins uh, of the priesthood, the priests afflicting the people. It's about 430 years before Christ's incarnation when he's prophesying. The book of Malachi is not the last book of the the Old Testament composed. Uh, First and second chronicles were likely written after Malachi, as were Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, and Esther. Um, But this is the final prophetic book, and it was written many centuries before God sent the final prophet, his son. So in one introduction to the book, I read this succinct summary of Malachi's prophecy. It is to awaken a people whose religious cynicism and skepticism of God's promises led to careless and dead worship. And to renew hope and revive true religion in view of the certainty of God's promises. So a cynical people moving away from the worship of God because it's boring and then move toward a revival of true religion 
and toward God's promises. In other words, the topic addressed is the deadness of the people that came because they were not seeing God's blessings. Right? If that was a cynical age, post-exilic Israel, what do we have today? There is nothing sacred anymore. There's nothing sacred. Um, cynicism is the default mode of every person, of every post, of every meme, of every communication. It is very hard to escape some element of cynicism coming out of your mouth in every time you speak. We've been trained. We've been trained by media. We've been trained by comedians. We've been trained to be cynics, right? Judgmental cynics, right? Our, our, our cultural gurus are cynical, right? They, they don't really... They don't really think people change. They just want your money. That's cynical. Right? Our children are cynical. How often do you, do you um, rebuke your children for the way that they use their tongues and their attitudes being cynical? Don't be so cynical. Right? Can you just be sweet and happy for a moment? Right? Say something nice to your sister. Don't just tear her down. Um, we ourselves are cynical. And we need to be shaken out of this cynicism by being reminded of God's everlasting and glorious promises to us. Right? All of which are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So, so Calvin, again, summarizes here, he says, God expostulates here with a perverse and ungrateful people because they doubly deprived him of his right. For he was neither loved nor feared, though he had a just claim to the name and honor of a master as well as to that of a father. Right? So here's God the Father. Here's God ministering to his people. And the people are just kind of like, nah, you know. Not such a big deal. In fact, I'd probably rather go dwell in the tents of wickedness. It'd be much more fun. God was neither loved nor feared by this, this group of people. And today, God is neither loved nor feared. Our love for the world makes, us, makes our love for God grow cold, cold, cold. And our fear of man and everything under the sun makes our fear of God you know, non-existent, diminishing. Like the church in Laodicea, like the church in Laodicea, we are lukewarm. And like the church in Thyatira, we tolerate the woman Jezebel. Right? No pursuit of righteousness, no fear of God, and no, no deep love for Jesus, just a, just a, a lukewarm. We have cold hearts toward God and passion toward the world. This should not be. This should not be. So on to the first few verses of Malachi's prophecy. We're not going to get very deep into this. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Remember that the words of the prophets are God's words delivered by the prophets. Second Peter 1, 20-21 says this, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. 
Right? These prophecies is not an act of human will. It's not Malachi making this up. It's not Malachi thinking, I think I want to be a poet. And being inspired in that sense. You know, being, uh, thinking that people will respect him if he writes um, inscrutable poetry. Right? But no, it's not a matter of one owns interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit. That's also why it's called a burden. He had very little choice in the matter, didn't he? God put a burden on him by the Holy Spirit moving him, and he was to speak from God. This is why our passage says the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, right? God speaking through Malachi to his people. Next, we read these words from God to his people. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. Now, it is true that God can say that to every person that has ever lived. Right? God is love and God has loved all those by his common grace that have ever lived. Right? But... You know, we, um, and, and so, but that's not what, what, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking to his covenant people, right? He's talking about those he has chosen, those he in a special way has set his affection upon. And he says, I have loved you. And we should rehearse the ways that God has loved his people, shouldn't we? It's, it's hard to even begin to wrap our heads around the ways in which God has loved us and God loved his people, right? I mean, we could probably just go person by person around this room and list things for hours. We should be able to. If we can't, lukewarm, right? But, but I mean, just things like this. I, I want you to think simply, God made us. God made us. God made you. God knit you together in your mother's womb. And he knew you right from that moment, right? That's God's love. He knows you, right? God made a world for you to live in, right? All this glorious universe around you is for you to live in, for you. And and not only are you just living in it and looking around it, but he's sending messages from outer space to you, not radio signals light, stars. You see the glory of the universe, right? And it testifies that he is and he is to be worshipped, right? The, the height of the mountains, all of that is a good gift to you, right? The depth of the valleys, the glory, the, 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 the strength of the hurricane all speak to us about the existence of, of God. God loved us when when. I mean, think of the, the third chapter of Genesis. Think of the love of that passage. In the day you eat from it, you will surely die. And there, there is God fashioning clothes for those who ate from it. Right? Showing them tenderness and compassion and, forg- and, and, and sacrifice. Right? So... so Um, I mean, go beyond that to all of us who by nature have rebelled against him and yet he's loved us. 
He set his affections on us through Jesus Christ. And, and how did he do that? God provided his only son to die. To die! God left glory and entered into misery. More misery than you've ever known. I don't care how many of your children have died. I don't care how many diseases you've had. I don't care, I don't care what you've suffered if it's been abuse. You have not suffered like Jesus Christ suffered. You haven't. You have not bore the almighty wrath of God for all sins of all time. And that's God loving you. That's God loving you. He provided his only son to die. And now God has made through his son a living way to dwell in his presence eternally. Without sin and the possibility of sin. Can you imagine that? Do you think on that? No more awkwardness between brothers and sisters in Christ. No more wicked thoughts. No more trying to take advantage of situations. No more manipulation. No more of that, but just dwelling in peace with one another, worshiping God. God has made that possible for you. Does he love you? I mean, we, we haven't even gotten into the very fact that he is love ontologically in a sense. I'm talking just about what he's given you, right? But there you are dwelling in his presence. And so we are just, cre- and, and to think of it all, we're just dust that he blew life into. I mean, come on. Doesn't that boggle your mind? We're Play-Doh that he animated. That's all we are. And yet he set his affection on Plato to such an extent that the Son of God came and died for animated Plato. And we get, to, we get to dwell in his presence. We're just dust. Why would he even want that? Why would he want it? But it's because he made our lips to be able to praise him. Right? He made our lips to be able to praise him. We're just creatures he made. Being eternally happy in himself, he had no need. But he breathed life into into us. And now we have the joy of living in his presence eternally without sin. I haven't mentioned yet even the everyday providences by which he loves us. The daily bread, the answered prayers, the the continual protection, the... the, um, the, the simple joys, the, the hugs from, from children, right? All those things that he's given us joy in. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. We're going to be like the son of God. So now back to Malachi. Look at the tragic second phrase of the second verse. God is speaking and he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And we've gone through all those things, how he's loved us. But you say, how have you loved us? But you say, 
How have you loved us? How have you, how have you, how have you loved us? The people respond to God's statement of his love with an indicting question. Right? It's as if they're saying, oh yeah, prove it. Prove it, God. Prove your love for us. Prove your love for us that, that has led to this misery we find ourselves in, right? Prove, prove it. Prove that you've loved us. I mean, that's a breathtaking response, isn't it? I have loved you, says the Lord. How have you loved us? That's a teenage brat sort of answer. But it's so common, isn't it? You and I countless times have responded to God with the same sort of prove it attitude. Right? On, on light, you know, one day, you know, one, one little mo- light and momentary affliction comes along and we start angsting out. Right? God takes away a friend. God determines to... To love us by sending us bodily afflictions and diseases and, and, and pain. God wrecks the relationship after he seemed to be leading us into it. And when it all comes down upon us, our prayers turn to, why me? Why don't you love me? Why all of this, God? Why does everyone around me get good things and get carried along on flowery beds of ease, but I get dumped on by you? God, God, you're always dumping on me. Where's the grace? Where's the grace? Where's where's the kindness? Why are we like this? I know you're like this. Because I'm like that. Right? Because we refuse to get it through our thick skulls that God has told us, Why all of these calamities and difficulties and trials come upon us? Why can't we remember this? You know what scriptures I'm going to read now, right? You do. And you have forgotten the exhortation. Note that start. You have forgotten the exhortation. That's what we do. We forget this exhortation. We continually forget this. You have forgotten the exhortation, which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him for those... Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges. He beats every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. Some of us did. And we respected them. Some of us did. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good. He's not taking guesses like every parent is, right? We just guess at what's going to be good for our children. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it's terrible. Be humble. Your parenting is terrible. Mine's terrible. You know, it's like playing billiards with, with a blindfold on. 
But God is never like that. Every action that God takes is good. Everything is meant to build us up. Everything is for our good. It says this, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Righteousness. Rightness. What about this? First Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Right? Trials. Trials, that's what those trials produce. Or what about this? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Those whom God loves, he scourges so that they might be transformed into the image of his son. The son who learned obedience by the things that he himself suffered. God gives the wicked God gives the wicked ease. Right? God gives those who will not bear up under his affliction over to their sins. And they find that God's patience runs out for them. Right? They will never acknowledge that the time past has been enough for them to, to carry out their lusts like the Gentiles. And so, dear brothers and sisters, when affliction comes, be very careful about your attitude. The child of God accepts the discipline of God without despising God. The child of the world never accepts the discipline of God, doesn't get it, and though he refuses to acknowledge or give thanks to God, he will raise his fist at the last judgment and say, how have you loved me? How have you loved me? The wicked man will have been sent warning after warning, after warning by the kindness of God, and he will have have heard pastors warning him to flee from his sins, only in the end, after ignoring them, to indict God for his lack of love. So, dear brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus Christ, don't be like those who hate God, right? Do not respond to God's severest love with a cynical, how have you loved me? Children, children, this is the reason that the clearest sign that your parents love you is that they continue to ride you for your sins, right? Their discipline is proof of their love. Do you get it? Because God's discipline is proof of his love. A parent's discipline is proof of their love. They are simply imitating the father in heaven, but Little one, do you know that if your parents don't discipline you, they hate you? Do you know that? You know it, Max? If they don't discipline, what's the proverb? Do you know the proverb? 
Some child here knows the proverb I'm thinking about. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. He who withholds his rod, that's the wooden spoon, hates his son. And so, children, remember this. Don't become cynical in the face of parents who ride you for your sins. Now, they get it wrong sometimes. Sometimes you're just sick and they think you're sinning. (laughs) But they'll repent, hopefully. But praise God that they love you enough to discipline you. How many times have you seen a child who is neglected by mother and father turn out to be terrible? Incorrigible, unteachable in the long run. So the people of God during the time of the prophet Malachi were cynical and spoiled brats. They had been the recipients of God's discipline, right, through those exiles, through the the prophets who came and announced God's word. They had been the recipients of God's guidance. They had been the recipient of God's continual warnings. They They had obviously been the recipients of God's love. And they refused to see it. They determined that they would live their own way, and Malachi was raised up to once again rebuke them before the prophet, to end all prophets, came along. And so may our hearts always be humble before Almighty God. If not, every little change, every little change in this life will make us question whether God has any love for us. Every tiny little momentary light affliction, every loss of job, every, every sniffle. Like spoiled brats will be like, how have you loved me? That shouldn't be. God has loved us with an everlasting love. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you. We acknowledge that you are the one true and living God. We confess before you that we have had attitudes that are not appropriate to the depth, the width, the height of your love for us. And we repent. And we ask that you would would help us to kill. Kill our shallow thoughts of you. Kill our shallow thoughts of your afflictions that come to us. May we be godly. May we be like your son. Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.